Sorry. Last week I talked about uh, being on retreat for four weeks and the beauty and the glories of uh, going deeper into silence, into exploring the nature of the mind and heart and body, and some of my reflections and intentions coming out of that. And this morning I want to uh, talk about a theme that, in a way, seems in another world from being on retreat. And I'm inspired by uh, Earth Day. And I wanted to talk about uh, the relation of our Dharma practice to responding to climate change and climate disruption. And to do, but I want to do that quite personally and uh, to do so in a way which I hope is uh, not, as it were, didactic or preachy. Either to myself or to anyone else. (laughs) So, and I want to, I'm doing this partly because I'm inspired for the Saturday event on uh, that I'm joining in with others. But I want to also do, I want to frame it initially as something like a dilemma, which I think many of us probably feel or think. And I'm, I want to do that rather, rather personally with myself. Um, because on the one hand, uh, the practice of meditation is so compelling. You know, and for me, being on retreat for those four weeks, and I probably collectively in my life have been on retreat seven or eight years, maybe maybe more, I don't know. Along, so I clearly value it. <laughs> it's <an> understatement, right? <laughs> and there's something very precious, and just the experience of uh, sustained meditation, of course, we all do that when we practice regularly in a in a way that's not as intensive, but still to practice for half an hour, to come to Spirit Rock, to be with the land. And the time on retreat, I talked about the beauty of living simply, of not having input, of being away from emails, of um, being just with the natural beauty. I talked about the qualities of renewal, of deeper insight, And uh, from a certain perspective, you could make the case that what else is there really to do in this life other than to develop wisdom and love and really to focus on it, right? Really to do that and to to touch more deeply. And I talked about how I was deeply motivated to have my own daily life express a little more fully those qualities of simplicity and awareness and uh, beauty and slowing down. That daily life, uh, for many of us, but maybe not for all of us, is fast-moving and it's often hard to remember our priorities. And when I came back, uh, I've been back about two weeks, and I've noticed that I've really, I have implemented a number of uh, small ways to keep more aware, have more awareness in daily life. Some of it's just doing small practices, which I stop, and not, and not so busy. One of the secrets is that a lot of meditation teachers get very busy. True confession. Get busy. Scheduling retreats is really, really hard. Knowing what to do. Sometimes we just, oh my God, did I really schedule that? Three things in a row? Oh my God. You know? And, and um, my friend and colleague Gil Fransdell once said, too much dharma is not dharma. <laughs> you know? um, very interesting. So we, we get busy too. I mean, we, we do more retreats and we have a perk that when we're teaching, we get to meditate a lot. So it's very nice in that way. 
Um, but, you know, I found that in really giving more attention to awareness in daily life, you know what I did less of? I didn't read the newspaper as much. And I didn't listen to the radio, actually, almost at all in the last two weeks. I mean, I, I looked a little bit, you know, I knew more or less the headlines and so forth, but I didn't do so much. I usually, in the past, most days I've listened quite a bit to Democracy Now!, you know, do you know that some of you listen to that program? Very, very wonderful. A little bit more focused on the problems than the solutions, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, um, and I found myself not doing that uh, so much. You know, it was I wasn't intending not to do it in the future, but it just was to have that space to bring in these changes. It took something like that, <coughs> right? So very compelling dharma. It could seem like this is what I want to do. Forget about the world, right? or just be a little bit in the world is very is a very compelling vision. You know, and I feel deeply drawn to have more awareness in daily life and to develop more wisdom and love. You know? And then there's the uh, question of responding to climate change. It could be other issues, right? It could be other issues, it could be whatever, violence or racism or whatever it might be, but in a way, we could say that uh, responding to climate change may be the defining issue of the current generation. We could say that. You know, we could say that, really. And I've personally also been very drawn to um, understand and help be part of the response to that issue. In the past, I've done um, several workshops on that theme You know, with colleagues who are you know, one colleague, Sarah Shadler, who uh, worked with Friends of the Earth on climate issues, and we did we did a, a weekend, or I guess it was a day-long workshop. It's also been a theme. I've been attending the meetings of the uh, Berkeley Climate Action Coalition, which is quite inspiring. It's really open to anyone. The United Nations said that uh, the Berkeley Climate Plan may be a model for all of North America. You know, there is a very clear plan which is being acted on, to cut emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, by 33% by 2020 and 80% by 2050. You know, so beautiful plan. And we could also, again, see that this is so compelling. This is the future of the Earth, right? You know, there's a very clear scientific consensus, you know, that, you know, we might say 97% I think of climate scientists agree on that we have major problems, that there have been a lot of shifts already. You know, there was an article that maybe some of you read uh, by Bill McKibben uh, a few months ago. I think it was August in the Rolling Stones. It's become a famous article. Any, anyone read this? Some of you know that, where he's, you know, he, um, he was kind of clearer than usual. He said that uh, in June in the United States, there were 3,215 records for cities for highest temperature in a month. You know, and you could go on like that to assemble the facts, but it's very clear that actually things are happening more quickly than scientists have thought, and it's dire, and it's more dire in some places than others. It's actually most dire, as we know, in, in countries that have not uh, caused the problem. Right? And so we, we know that. Um, and the other, you know, there's these very pressing need to radically shift behavior. Some scientists say to radically shift by as much as um, 80%. A cut uh, greenhouse gas emissions by as much as 80% by 2020. You know? So that's, that's quite hard to imagine that happening. But yet, the, you know, on the other side, the bright side, actually the solutions are very, very clear. It doesn't take actually um, much thinking to know what to do. And there are some excellent uh, books out there. Some of you may know Lester Brown's work. He has um, a very clear model for how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2020. And he says it would cost uh, $200 billion a year, which is way less than the defense budgets of so many countries. You know? 
And so it's very possible, and he has a very clear analysis of increasing energy efficiency and conservation in a number of ways. A key to it is actually taxing carbon emissions. Most people say that. Um, And uh, shifting from fossil fuels to renewable energy. There are all sorts of actions that come under these categories. Uh, Stabilizing the population, eradicating poverty. Poverty is... Social scientists tell us it's one of the major reasons for um, population increase and thus greater use, uh, restoring the earth and feeding people in a different way. So it's actually inc- completely doable, right? How to resolve the problem is completely doable. Intelligent people have thought about it, know what to do, and yet governments are enacting, right? or they're acting minimally, or they're acting more in some countries than in others. Our country is not acting much. Right? Some cities are acting, like Berkeley and others. And so we um, have this challenging situation where it's really the fate of the Earth. You know, um, If the warming continues unabated, uh, it will be horrifying for future generations in a number of ways. We know that, right? We, if, it, if, it, if it isn't changed, you know, there will be resource wars, there will be uh, probably millions and maybe even billions of refugees. Uh, we know, I think, those, those scenarios, and we probably live with them in an unconscious way inside, so we know that, right? And so, um, you know, uh, Bill McKibben says, if 10% of us are deeply passionate about this, and change our lifestyles, and have fuel-efficient cars, and act impeccably with recycling, not much will change. If 10 or 15% of us are active, along with the good lifestyle, <laughs> and, and, uh, and actually act to shift the systems, he says everything will change. So it's kind of a call. Do you want to be one of part of the 10 or 15% who helped shift the world to a sustainable course. So again, very compelling. Incredibly compelling. What, you know, who wants to meditate all the time when the world's at stake, right? So do you see the dilemma? If you just came in, I <laughs> presented the dilemma. On the one hand, the spiritual life and just seeking personal peace and just getting one's life somewhat together. It's such an important uh, pursuit, right? We heard... There are challenges, you know, we have personal challenges, our family members have challenges, just to be helpful, to have more love, more wisdom. Sometimes they seem that's full-time pursuit, right? And then, on the other hand, the world's in great need. So what do we do? How do you work with that dilemma? Do you choose one way or do you choose the other way? And so the answer is, The answer is, do both. Do both and connect them. And I'll say more, I'll say more about that. Um, because I, I don't at all mean that everyone needs to be an activist. And I'll, I'll get to that. So I just wanted to say that um, initially. Um, but how to respond to that kind of dilemma of the power of inner transformation and bringing that out into one's life on the one hand, and then the, the uh, really dire need for caring people to be part of a deep response right now. Right? How do you work with that? And I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure each of us at times grapples with that. It's really uh, very, very urgent. And I thought of Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, who was in Vietnam as a monk, being in the monasteries with the traditional training at the time of deep social need, war and civil war in Vietnam. And this is what he said. This is the, as it were, the both-and response. He said, when I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries 
or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both, to do both, to go out and help people and to do so in mindfulness. We called it Engage Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And we can see that in the lives of other deep contemplatives, that they came to something like that uh, approach. And they did it in their own ways. Some of you know the life of Thomas Merton, who is a lifelong contemplative in a monastery in uh, Kentucky at the Abbey of Gethsemane. And he had been an activist before he became a monk. Some of you know, if you've read The Seven Story Mountain. And he kept that consciousness even when he was in the monastery, even when he was a hermit. And some of you may know that a lot of the Catholic activists used to visit him, the Berrigans, uh, people used to write to him. And he, in some ways, even though he stayed in the monastery, he stayed connected. So he did it in his own way. It wasn't like he had to do it in someone else's way. He did it in his own way. He brought it into his writing. He wrote, he wrote about moral responsibility to, in, ter- in terms of larger social issues as a monk, you know, living the last years of his life as a hermit in the forest. Right? Uh, Buddha Dasa, the great Thai teacher, very similar in Thailand, People used to come visit him. He wrote about connecting the Dhamma. He was someone who was a lifelong meditator in a situation of urgency, and he, he found ways, his own ways to do both. Or I think of uh, Dorothy Day, very similar story, if you know her story. You know, a person who was called to a religious faith and found ways to combine it. Or Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma. You know, there are these figures. Or, or maybe someone like uh, Gandhi as well. They found ways to to do both. And I think some of this is about uh, seeing where one's gifts lies and finding ways to to really help. Uh, You know, I think very much of Joanna Macy's uh, teaching. Uh, She's going to be one of the people there on Saturday. She, She... teaches about what she calls the great turning, essentially to a sustainable world, right? It could be a very beautiful vision, you know, beautiful vision of what that looks like. And she says that there are three main ways that the great turning occurs. And listen for where you feel drawn. She says some people have to engage in what she calls holding actions to prevent further damage. That's usually the province traditionally of activism, right? To stop uh, damage from happening further. Some people have to do that, right? Or help with that. She said some people have to help shift the basic institutions, we might say, towards more sustainability or towards a different way of working. Maybe that has more dharma. So people who are working in the helping professions and bringing different perspectives in uh, or... Uh, shifting the education of children so there's more education about sustainability. It's a big part of things, right? Or shifting the medical profession and so forth. All, you know, people are engaged in those kind of, those kind of shifts, are doing something very important, um, having farmer's markets, right? Having community agriculture. These are all very, very significant. You know, and so where are we called? You know, where are we called? And the third is in shifting consciousness. The third way that change happens is by shifting consciousness. And this could be in helping to, again, develop different ways of parenting, different ways of education. It could be to teach yoga and teach about the parallels between the earth and our bodies, right? Something like that. could be to teach meditation and develop more sensitivity uh, to ourselves, but also to the earth. You know, it could be, all of these things are part of it. You know, because actually, what needs to shift is um, a whole way of being. Right? It's really a whole way of being on the earth, and um, 
what I'll, what I'll actually say in a moment is that the Dharma practice, in a way, needs to engage and those who want to change things need Dharma practice. <laughs> that without that, there'll tend to be some distortions. That's what I want to talk about the rest of the time. And so there's a, there's a way in which we want to find our own gifts. Remember that beautiful quotation that I often give from Howard Thurman. He says, again, I think very pertinent here, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is those who have come alive. So where are my gifts? Where am I called? In a way that, that connects with this large need for, shift, for a shift and that connects with Dharma practice. You know, where, where is that? And sometimes we have to listen to know what that is. You know, and also, I just want to say also, I know from personal experience, there are cycles. Sometimes we're more inner and sometimes we're more outer. There are cycles where I've not wanted to deal with social issues for two or three years and really primarily focused in the inner way. And sometimes then I've been called to bring this out into the world more. And there are also sometimes there are developmental cycles where we're really called for our own personal healing just to have a little more peace or to work with something. And that needs to be respected. You know? So this is really, I think, about respecting where we're at in our own journeys and seeing, am I called to help in some way? You know? And I'm, I'm saying this for myself as well because I'm, I'm definitely much more engaged in the meditative side these days than in the response side, you know, even though teaching is part of that, can be part of that. So I'm partly also um, asking myself these questions. You know, it's not, it's like, I think they're questions for all of us. So, um, so I wanted to, in the rest of the talk, uh, make two points. One is that uh, Dharma practice really needs to engage to be mature and full. And the other one is Basically, that these two aspects need each other desperately, and that people who want to help shift the world desperately need spiritual practice, and that without that, it will tend to be distorted. And our spiritual practice, without some sense of how we engage with these large issues, may tend to be distorted as well. That's what I want to explore uh, um, for the rest of the time. And also, you know, in terms of our spiritual practice, I want to go back actually to some core principles because I think that responses really develop beautifully out of our core practices of kindness, generosity, compassion, a sense of interdependence, wisdom, and so forth. And I want to, I want to talk about that some. Um, but there's a danger that our meditation practice will be limited and privileged. I think we know that. You know, When I was in Thailand and would talk to, I would go to uh, meetings of the network, International Network of Engaged Buddhists, and a number of the Thai uh, leaders in that movement, they were concerned about the future of Buddhist practice in the United States, and I think in the West in general. They had a fear that it would become part of middle-class escape from the problems of the world. They had a fear of that, you know, and they, you know, that it would be kind of a, a, a luxury uh, practice for people to have a little more peace in a difficult world for those who are already privileged, right? And um, there is a there is a cultural critic named uh, some of you know Slavok Zizek, a, from uh, former Yugoslavia. Um, uh, sp- the last name is spelled Z-I-Z-E-K. He's kind of, anyone know his name? He's kind of famous in certain cultural circles. There was actually a film made about him because he's kind of like a iconoclastic uh, pop philosopher almost, like in whose, whose talks are a little bit like rock concerts <laughs> with a Yugoslav accent <laughs> and so forth. And so he kind of takes some, makes some strong statements. This is what he said he, he said um, he had a fear 
that Western Buddhism is becoming, he said, the hegemonic ideology of global capitalism. Whoa. Because, he said, its meditative stance is arguably the most efficient way for us to, to fully participate in capitalist dynamics while retaining the appearance of mental sanity. Western Buddhism enables you to fully participate in the frantic pace of the capitalist game while sustaining the perception that you are not really in it, that you are well aware of how worthless this spectacle is, and that what really matters to you is the peace of the inner self to which you know you can always withdraw. <clears throat> I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's um, a strong statement, right? But it, it points to, it just points to that question of... Uh, um, again, and with all the qualifications I had earlier about about um, the need for cycles and periods of withdrawal, but I think it's a very real question. Uh, you know, do you know? Does uh, how do we use our practice, and 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 how do we relate to the needs of the world? Um, I think a more uh, constructive way to approach things is to see that the core principles of our practice call us in different ways as we deepen to respond to others and to help others. You know, this is something we've explored a lot as the path of the bodhisattva, one who works for one's own well-being but also helps others to come to greater freedom. And there's this beautiful quotation, some of you know, I've read it from time to time, from Gary Snyder, the poet who lives in uh, near Nevada City in California, He says this, historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be givens of the human condition. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. I think he's talking about Asia, Asian Buddhism. The mercy of the West, he says, has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic uh, self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, and ethics or morality. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's own ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into this mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in, until the love and wisdom becomes the mind you live in. Ethics or morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community or sangha of all beings. He wrote that in 1961. It's quite a statement. So that's saying that's the both-and approach, right? And so I was, I was reflecting on just how some of our core principles, and this could be a much longer talk, this, this section, but on how some of our core principles really call us to respond. For example, uh, I was talking this morning over breakfast with Steve Armstrong, who's teaching the retreat up, up above, and we were talking about um, generosity. Generosity is the first, is dana, is the first of the paramis, first of the virtues we developed traditionally, and how this is really about giving. Ultimately, it's about giving one's life. But it's also about really sort of asking, how much is enough? What can I offer? And really asking, I think this is in connection with the ethical precept of not taking that which is not given. Are we taking what actually... uh, are we taking away that which might belong to future generations? Are we acting in a way which impacts on future generations? If we want to be generous to future generations and give them the same kind of opportunities we have, we would want to really make sure that their lives have the right conditions to prosper. Right? That that comes out of a sense of generosity. It can come out of a sense of interdependence. Right? That we are connected. That we are responsible you know, a sense of the core ethical idea is that my actions matter, that there is karma, that my actions have impact. And when we are collectively using resources in a way which have negative impact on future generations, 
We want to know that, right? If we want to live ethically, we want to know that. We want to be caring. We want to live according to the precepts of not taking that which is not given. We want to be generous. We want to, um, uh, not just future generations, but people in other countries. We know that people in the U.S. consume 25% of the resources of the world. And we have about 5% of them. I also saw that each U.S. citizen is, the average, is responsible for 55,000 pounds of carbon emissions a year through our ordinary activities. You know, and um, in Germany it's uh, 27,000 and in Sweden it's 15,000 because they do things differently and probably have a more abundant lifestyle than we do you know, in terms of the average level. You know? So if we are collectively acting in ways which impact on the future, isn't that something to consider in terms of our core principles of compassion, of generosity, of interdependence, of being aware of things, of wanting to respond to the suffering of others? If our actions collectively in the West have caused climate issues, which are, again, more acutely felt probably in Asia and Africa right now than in the U.S., although more recently in in the U.S., isn't an imperative for us collectively to respond, to change, you know. And so there's also part of our Dharma practice is having a sense of the causes and conditions. How, how does this arise? What, what's the relationship between my actions and other things happening? We want to know that. We want to be more attuned to it. We want to... Um, we want to act, again, the core principle of our ethics is non-harming. We do not want our lives to harm others. It's an aspiration, right? And so that's, I think any of these, if we go into them more deeply, are a basis for wanting to ha- have some energy to collectively shift. You know, again, it could be, you know, there are, of course, many ways that we can personally shift on on Saturday, I'm going to be particularly reflect. I'm not talking about it here, but I'm going to particularly reflect on how Spirit Rock might might become more uh, aligned with this. I think the primary hard issue is transportation. Right? So, would the Wednesday morning group be willing to do more carpooling? Mm. <laughs> right. A lot of some of it comes down to this, right? Some of it comes down to these kind of issues. Would, um, would you be willing to do more carpooling to to help reduce the carbon footprint of Spirit Rock, right? Because ultimately something like that's collectively going to be necessary. You know, At certain times in our history, there was collective mobilization towards a great cause. World War II, I think, was like that after Pearl Harbor. An entire country totally mobilized. People shifted their lives. They did things. You know, people grew, what, uh, victory gardens... Women went to work, right? Um, you know, there was industries shifted to help um, help the larger cause, and something like that may be necessary now, right? And how to you know how to be part of that? How to how to do that? You know. So I think that all of our core Dharma principles, and and also very significantly, I think the meditative training that helps us to be aware of what's there in our minds. And when there's reactivity, you know, and when there is um, also to see more deeply into our conditioning. You know, some of the conditioning maybe, if there are aspects of privilege, is more subtle, right? Or to see how much am I attached to certain levels of comfort. I saw that a lot when I traveled in Asia, and particularly the former Soviet Union is actually way harder than Asia. You know, I've talked about that, you know, Lack of Western toilet paper, big issue. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, um, but you know, again, I don't think it's about deprivation, but it's just about what are we called to do? What are we called to do? And the other side of that is, I think that the current models of how change comes about, particularly traditional model, current models of activism 
are woefully inadequate. You know, that they, I don't think they're going to work. You know, that the model of kind of a confrontational activism of blaming and judging, demonizing the enemy, of all that, and it, it tends to alienate quite a large part of the population. So I think there's a whole new model of how change occurs has to come into being. And I was thinking about it. What are some of the problems I would take of this traditional model of activism, which of course has its merits and not uh, demonizing it or, or wanting to dump on it. But uh, there is a way that it can be, you know, let me name a few ways. These are probably very familiar. It can be incredibly self-righteous, right? as if everyone's not part of the problem. Right? Uh, there can be attachment to views, possibly. <laughs> like, goes along with the self-righteousness, attachment to views. There can be lack of, a, lack of skill with difficult emotions. Being caught up in anger, for example, not working skillfully with anger, having anger fuel a movement, right? Has its limits. Can be demonization of the enemy. Lack of creating what Dr. King called the beloved community. Um, there can be, uh, because people aren't also taking care of themselves, there can be burnout, right? Um, People often don't take care of themselves and even think that taking care of oneself is wrong. Perhaps you've met people like that. I remember when I was in college and I would be, I was an activist and I had friends who thought it was um, a waste of time to go to a movie. Get a little extreme in college sometimes, but, you know, but who thought that, who felt guilty doing that. And I've talked with present-day people who work who sometimes have, there's a certain culture of that in some circles. Burnout happens. Um, you, know, one ha- you know, often uh, people get burned out by being with difficulty or not having the success they want. And they start blaming. When I met with... <clears throat> I went in 2005 to a conference on spiritual activism and I asked people what they mostly did to learn who were there. And they said, we need to work with anger. We so often turn on each other. Infighting among activist groups is a huge issue, big problem. So um, think about this. Attachment to views, lack of skill with difficult emotions, uh, demonization of others, blaming, judging, lack of taking care of oneself, Difficulty of being with difficult situations. Where are they going to learn these things? How to do them better? As children. Huh? In the home. In the home initially, but um, basically in exactly what we're doing here. <laughs> right. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I just named those. Do you, that's the list of topics we talk about, right? Working with skillfully with difficult emotions, not being attached to views, being mindful of our own reactivity, looking into our conditioning, um, um, taking care of oneself, you know, having compassion for self as well as others. So that's very significant for me. I think that there has to be this marriage or it's not going to work. And, it's really, and it really is actually sowing the seeds of a culture where we connect inner and outer together. So for me, there's a very inspiring vision of these coming together which I want to be part of, and I want to help come and help it come into being. So let me just finish by by uh, summarizing it in a little bit. I think that um, there's a danger that spiritual practice, when it's not connected in some ways to the urgent needs of the world, can become distorted. Again, allowing for the cycles of being times when we really need to focus primarily in an inner way, and that can be several years. That's been that way for me. So it can be distorted. Um, there's also the danger that we don't see that the world is really also actually in us, that we, we take in the world um, and so forth. And for those who are wanting to actually work in the world, there's a really a strong need, uh, I believe, to develop spiritual resources. I think without the spiritual resources of compassion, equanimity, balance, seeing the reactive mind, working with it. Um, 
the, the need is too much. People won't be able to do it otherwise. And so I think there's this very natural and beautiful way that there can be this um, connection. It points, it's really, a, it's a, this is a large vision, right? It's a large vision of, that might guide us for the next 50 or 70 or 100 years. And um, personally, I think it's more just a matter of seeing where are we called. When we look deeply, where am I called? You wouldn't be here unless you were called to deepen in love and wisdom and compassion. But, and again, many of us are, I think, already acting in the world, but what, how, how do you work with this? And where do you fit in Joanna Macy's three ways of responding? You know, which again means we really find our own way, our own voice. But I think, uh, and again, it can be more directly on the front lines, or maybe where there are some. You know, but we mostly are, I don't know, um, cultivating community gardens, you know, or something like that, you know, or helping with the education system, you know, for the children, right, or something like that. You know, so where, where are we called? The, you know, helping with uh, prevent further damage, shifting institutions, or helping to change consciousness in ourselves and ourselves and others. Um, I'm going to end with a, a short poem that I, I forgot to um, get, so I'm going to have to do it by memory. This one I, I love. It's very short. It's by Dina Metzger. It goes like this. The world is on fire. We are in danger. There is no time not to love. Let me say, there is no time to rush. <laughs> there is no time not to love. I think I haven't got that quite right, but it's basically saying there is urgency. And yet it's possible to really stay focused on being in the present, on not rushing, on not having one's head on fire, and staying centered in love and awareness and wisdom. And that's her way of dealing with this. The world is on fire. We are in danger. And yet there's no rush. And there's no time not to love as we are engaged. So I'll stop with that and just invite us to sit for a few moments. So thank you for thank you for your good attention and any reflections thoughts um, you know I know I'm, I'm aware that sometimes we we uh, very often you know we may come here for just really peaceful reflection and say oh gosh bring in the world oh my god. And then I'm, so I'm aware, I'm aware of that. It really is the two aspects of that, that dilemma, right, that I talked about. So I want to thank you for your um, patience and willingness to hear. So any questions or thoughts, please? Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, what, if any, organizations do you think are um, effectively dealing with this climate issue? On a, you know, with the... Um, 
The interesting thing about this, it really, um, the climate issue is something that we can respond to on every level. You know, so we can respond to it very significantly just in terms of personal household. And then there's also the citywide, like I think Berkeley, you know, I brought in, I didn't read it from it, but I brought in the uh, Climate Action Plan for Berkeley, which is quite beautiful, very precise. They have a very clear analysis of where greenhouse gas emissions come, different kinds of transportation, housing needs, and waste, basically, those three areas. And so there's a tremendous amount that one can do uh, in terms of one's personal household. This is a beautiful book. It's called Low Carbon Diet. It's a household, it's a beautiful book that one can work with to reduce very significantly. It's a 30-day program to lose 5,000 pounds. <laughs> uh, that's 5,000 pounds of uh, carbon emissions. Remember, average house, 55,000 in, in the U.S. And so it's a beautiful, you know, very simple, very simple things to do. So when we can, so there are a lot of places that really support this kind of, the Ecology Center in Berkeley is very good, that, that support, you know, action on the household level. Then there's the community level, city level, so you can be part of a city that adopts a plan very much like Berkeley's, right? And it's, it's out there on the web, it's a beautiful plan, and um, a lot of the Bay Area communities are already doing that, you know. Marin has, uh, and um, Spirit Rock has adopted basically green energy. You know, we know that all the electricity and resources we use here are coming from uh, um, Marin Energy Authority, Authority, which, and there's some problems with it, but it's basically, it's basically um, uh, sustainable, a sustainable model of energy use. And so there are things that cities can do. And then on a, you know, on a, uh, national and uh, international level, um, it's more complex, right? More complex. I, I think it's, I, I like to think of that uh, ultimately the personal and the community or citywide level, when that be, that becomes the basis for the larger changes, right? or they go hand in hand, right? It's not either or. Uh, and um, But then in terms of, I have a, I have a handout that I'd, I'd be happy to give you, which I gave uh, when we did a workshop a while ago, and it, it lists a number of organizations. You know, I like uh, Bill McKibben's work, 350.org. You know, of course, you know there are other. You see, there are other, a lot of other organizations doing good work. Uh, Lester Brown's connected with the World Watch Institute in Washington D.C. He has books where he just lays out complete solution. Right? It's, it's right. It's not again. It's not hard to imagine, and it's it's all doable. It's, you know, the hard thing is getting there. It's, so that, that's the really promising aspect of all this. It is doable, and it's more a matter of political will and, and of uh, being willing to act in ways which take away the power, power of a lot of the energy companies. I mean, there are, you know, that's, that's one of the political issues that there's, you know, the energy companies are hand-in-hand hand with the politicians, right? So that's um, that's a... That's a challenging aspect, but uh, so, you know, 350.org, uh, a lot of the other organizations, you know, obviously uh, Al Gore has an uh, organization which is training, he has a, a, a climate leader training program, which, which I think happens uh, once or twice a year, doing really great work. On Saturday, there are going to be nine organizations there. And, and uh, let me see if I can find my handout quickly. Yeah, yeah, there are going to be nine organizations that are uh, really answering. And here's, I'll, I don't have, I can give these to a few people. I don't, or we can maybe copy them. So, uh, yeah, um, this is from a few years ago, and it was I did the workshop in Santa Cruz, so it's oriented towards Santa Cruz. Uh, but yeah, um, 350.org, Greenpeace, uh, Oxfam International, uh, Friends of the Earth. Center for Biological Diversity. Those are some of the uh, leaders that are that are uh, doing good work. Um, there are Buddhist organizations. There was a book done a few years ago that my friend David Loy co-edited, called uh, "Buddhist Responses to the Climate Emergency," which I think is in the bookstore, which is a very nice summary of things and has a lot of statements. There's a wonderful resource called the Forum on Religion and Ecology, which sends out clippings 
and is particularly interested with the, in the intersection between spirituality and responding to, well, ecological issues generally, but climate change. Um, there is, um, you know, there, there is an organization in the Bay Area called Green Sangha, which does a number of different projects. They, they offer household audits, for example. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Other thoughts, reflections? Yeah. Does the, is there a process or personnel in the coalition that deal with conflicting data, conflicting views? For example, mm. um, this is a school of thought that says that a vegan diet is that which will save the most pounds of... Mm-hmm. Um, and another, the Organic Consumers Association, for example, says pasturing animals, as as our ancestors did, mm-hmm. uh, that's really the effective way that mm-hmm. has worked. So how? Yeah, how how to work with differences within people who are going in the same direction? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I mean, obviously, we want to have our practice of working skillfully with views to not be attached to views. So all those people should come on Wednesday morning. <laughs> and, uh, but seriously, uh, and there's more of that intersection. There are a number of places, and I've done a number of these, where we offer retreats for people who are activists. You know, and we should do more of that maybe here. But though, because a certain number of people really love, love that. You know, it's, it's a relief to really not be so caught in views and anger and so forth. So that's the first point. But I think that um, probably my sense of it, without knowing a lot of it in detail, is that the, uh, that the area of disagreement in, in the big picture is relatively minor on, on those issues. Right? Well, it's just an example. I just wondered if there were as an established process or practice or people who really made it their work to sort out conflicting or 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 enable people to hold the possibility of of, of different truths different yeah you know, or different approaches i think i think that's important because uh, you know the the big um, the big causes of greenhouse gases uh, are are other than the, the ones you've mentioned i think and and uh I hope that there can be, you know, I think, but I think people have to be trained in not being attached to views. And then, of course, you know, people can do research on those issues to help help clarify. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think uh, I think there are different views on that particular issue, as there would be on quite a few. But I think the larger agreements are the important ones. That would be my perspective on that. Um, please, yeah. I belong to the Marin Green Sangha, and I, I really enjoy it. We write petitions. Yeah. Every month we write petitions. And then we also have um, some very interesting guest speakers that yeah. come every week and speak. So if you're looking for something, you know, that's something. It's on Sunday morning, 10 to 1, uh, I think it's the second week at the second Sunday of the month, but it's, and they're going to be here at Spirit Rock with a booth and supporting stuff too. So yeah. I mean, and I really enjoy them, and it makes me feel really good. I feel more purposeful and more on track. Like they, we did a lot of writing uh, in, uh, mm-hmm. in support of GMOs, which of course didn't pass. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. So I think I think feeling feeling connected. Mm-hmm. On these issues is important, you know. Um, could be in one's, you know, could do a like a in one's block or neighborhood or something. I mean, there's a lot of creativity demanded, so and leadership, I think, also, because it's, you know, I don't know. The other side of this, we're all. I don't know about you, but many of us are very busy, right? And like, oh my God, I got to deal with climate change as well as my, you know, or it's a little bit, you know. It's a little, it's a little bit like the mentality. You remember that T-shirt that had a cartoon of a, a woman saying, "It was during, I think, during the anti-nuclear war thing. Nuclear war. There goes my career." <laughs> you know, and so, it, I mean, I think we have to be very, 
humble about, uh, you know, and we have inner contradictions and, yeah. Any, anything else, please, yeah, Mara? Can you say just a, a few words about how to not be discouraged? How not to be discouraged? That's a great question. Um, well, for one thing, uh, I, I, I think generally... Um, Generally, it's like a lot of our practice. The core structure of practice in general is being willing to look at difficult stuff and then also spending a certain amount of time in beautiful states. If we only worked with our own suffering, we get burned out in meditation as well as in other... And so, like when I work with people on transforming the judgmental mind, which is hard stuff, personally, um, it's very clear that there's a balance between... Uh, going into the judgmental mind, which tends to be painful, tends to be difficult. And when you go deeper, you get into hard stuff, you know, sometimes old patterns that come out of sometimes difficult childhood material and so forth. And um, it's important to do that, but it's also important to really touch base with loving kindness, with beautiful states, to feel one's own beauty, especially if self-judgment's the issue with one's own beauty, to really be away from the judgmental mind and touch the beauty and touch the wonderful qualities. And I think um, and this, this is interesting in terms of how change occurs. You know, Does change occur more by uh, defeating the bad stuff or the hard stuff or does it cha- happen more by touching the good stuff and connecting with that more and more? And a lot of, I think historically, when you look at it, a lot of times it's more the latter. I think personally it's often more the latter. Sometimes when, when um, Heather Sundberg and I were once just talking at a retreat, on seven-day retreat on transforming the judgmental mind, and we asked, have you transformed your judgmental mind more by actually going into it, hanging out with it, doing the hard work, or just actually shifting more to more beautiful states of more confidence and beauty and wisdom and love. And we have to say, well, maybe the latter, actually. You know, the first, you have to be willing to do that. It's important. You can't run from that. And so I think, for me, that, that suggests a model. And that's, again, part of what's missing in traditional activism. It's almost entirely focused on, here are the problems, right? Here are the problems. And it's natural, if you just focused on the problems, and there haven't been any, you know, maybe don't find so many recent successes, it's very easy to get discouraged. So I think focusing on the positive, this is like for Gandhi, there was both the campaign to oust uh, the British, but something is not often very known. He had what he called the constructive program, which was about really transforming India in a certain way. This is where it, it, the, the focus was on village um, agriculture, economics, and that's where he had the weaving you know, and that's and, and it was really uh, that was very much a focus, and so I think generally speaking, I would focus uh, on the positive. Be careful about too much for the negative. Watch your mind. Watch your mind telling negative stories. Watch other people telling negative stories that impact on you. And um, I think ultimately, my own confidence comes from my faith in the human spirit. And from what I know directly, personally, experientially, which is that um, love and wisdom are deeper than suffering. That's ultimately the root faith, which would, I, th- I think, keep me going with almost anything. Because I know that. You know, that's, that's a fruit of practice, you know, to know that more and more. To know that no matter what anyone tells you, no matter what your experience is, no matter what difficulties there are, this is deeper. This is deeper. And, uh, and of course, you know, one can, if one rests in that more and more, it becomes un- increasingly unshakable. It's, we call that equanimity, right? Or other things like, like that. But I think, so that's part of it also. Personally, explore your own depths more and more to where you know your own depths in a way that you basically have a sense of what are the roots of suffering and confusion which are uh, part of 
the crisis, right? That's part of the roots of the crisis. What are the roots of that in our own minds? And and ha- and is that something that is? How do we understand that? And is there something deeper than that? And I think we get clear answers. There is something deeper, and so we have to know that. So we have to study all that. How does suffering occur? We have to understand. We have to look out the world and have dharma eyes. That's why I say, look out the world and see it through the eyes of your own practice. And that that's like a protection. It's like a protection against discouragement. And, and then you have to work with it and work with people like Joanna Macy who has all these beautiful practices to work with that issue in particular. So again, thank you for your patience. I realize this is challenging material at times and sometimes troubling, upsetting, and so forth. But it's also... Um, I think we we have a commitment with practice to look at reality, right? As skillfully as we can and to respond. So thank you again. And may our time together be a benefit to others. Yeah. When will this be on Dharma Seed? Um, when will this be on Dharma Seed? Uh, it should be uh, today or tomorrow. Thank you. Mm-hmm.